If you could turn your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6, and I guess I'll go back to the point of what I am thankful for this morning, just as I was thinking about Cornerstone Church and formerly known as Evangel. And if it's funny, I always say this, if you're new here, you go in the community and you say Evangel, everybody knows what church you're talking about. And then you say cornerstone, and they kind of look at you googly-eyed. But that's who we have become over the last several years, a name change before I got here. But I was thinking this morning about new beginnings and really new birth. And I'm going to call us to this place for some of us to a challenge of new birth today. But I was thinking of God's faithfulness to Cornerstone Church over the years. The people that have been here for the long haul, for almost the whole time of the conception, you've seen the ups and downs. You've seen the toils. You've seen the snares. You've seen even uh, moral fellings. But God has been faithful to hold this church on Milwaukee and Broad Street, on the corner, and He continues to shine His light through us. It's not the building. It's the people. And He chooses to continue to just keep us going. And by God's grace, we're going to keep going. And we're going to see His glory come. And we're going to see the light of Jesus shine. And as I've talked on Wednesday nights, this is the pre-sermon before the sermon. As I talked on Wednesday nights, it's like His light shined in the darkness. And they were not looking for His light. They were not, and if you think about you and I, we were not looking for Jesus when Jesus found us. At least I wasn't. But yet He found me. And He changed all that I'm about, and He gave me new life, and and He's put something in me that although my days sometimes are dreary, sometimes they are sunshiny, He is constant. And so I thank God for our church. And I thank God for what He's doing for us. And we continue to pray that He would use you for His glory and for His honor. And so as we read this morning, we have the kids with us. And so I'll try to make this a shorter sermon. um, But we know how that goes. But following all these announcements, right? The following service, we will have a potato dinner. uh, So we can go a little bit longer this morning um, in the Word joke. But please join us. Please join us. All right, let's read. I was going to take it from uh, Mark 6, 1 through 13, but I think 7 through 13 need to be kind of looked at a little bit more in depth for the authority that Christ gives to his disciples. And so we'll save that for next week. But so I want to focus on unbelief and doubt this week. So let's read together and then we're going to pray. Jesus went out from there and came into His hometown and His disciples followed Him. When the Sabbath came, He began to teach in the synagogue and many listeners were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to Him in such miracles as these performed by His hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, the brother of Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. He wondered at their unbelief and he was going around the villages and teaching. Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself had a hard time performing miracles? It's interesting. Let's pray together. Well, Father, here we come before you and we desire to hear your word. And Jesus, we desire to behold you face to face this morning. And Lord, to truly know you. And Father, I realize that sometimes in our lives that we just go on not realizing that you are right there and right here in our midst. So we want to recognize that today, that you are in our midst. And we ask that you would please speak to us, Lord, and would you please show us our unbelief? Will you please show us our doubts this morning? Father, that we may turn to you, so will you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to understand what you're trying to say to us. We desperately need you, so we welcome you, Holy Spirit, this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with three points, tell you the three points that I have today. The amazement of Jesus, doubters in the Bible, and the reason point number two comes out, I had a funny conversation with a very young man, a child, about doubts. It made me begin to think about doubts, and so the doubters in the Bible, there's lots of them. You don't go very far without seeing them in the Bible. And the third is the solution for doubting God. As there are solutions for us, there are ways that we can get past our unbelief and past our doubting. Although there are always going to be questions that on this side of, of life that we won't always know, but on the other side, everything will be made known to us as we see Him face to face but you remember last week we talked about Jairus and his daughter. She actually died. Yet Jairus pressed into the Lord and said, Lord, if you just touch, come and touch my child, she will be made well. So Jairus had faith that God could do what God said he would do and that this Jesus had the power to do it. Then we see this lady who an issue of blood for 12 years and she spent all her money and as she spent her money to get healed by the doctor, she only found herself getting worse. There's no answers for her. And yet she had heard, she had just heard about this Jesus and that if she could just touch His cloak, just touch His garment, she would be made well. And remember, Jesus said, whoa, somebody has touched me. The disciples looked around and said, whoa, who, who what do you mean, Lord? People have touched you before. But he said, no, power has went out from me. And she turned and he turned and looked at her. She realized she was caught and she trembled and feared and bowed before him and, and confessed everything. And he says, your faith has made you whole. 
And so we talked about faith, and faith is a reliance upon and trust in God, essential emphasis of Christianity. And I have to add this in here, is that sometimes we don't enter into this rest and this peace because of our unbelief, because of our lack of faith. And sometimes we would never come out and say this, but we would say, Jesus' cross is not enough. How many of you would actually say that today? That Jesus' cross is not enough. No, you would surely never say it. But yet, we hang our heads and we act as if, did I do enough to deserve God's favor and His love? And, and so we go about our days, we're excusing the rest because why our unbelief? Our unbelief is that this cross is not powerful enough to say that I am righteous and above reproach. Spotless and blameless. And we must enter this rest, but we know that faith is, according to Hebrews 12, uh, verse 2, is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the center of our faith. In Hebrews eleven six, we talked about this last week, is believing God is who He says He is. That He exists. Even when our circumstances tell us otherwise. And He rewards those who seek Him with their whole being. God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him. And that's what faith is. It brings us to this place of saying, God, You are God, and I am not. You are uncontrollable, but You hold all things in control. And then I have to ask us this question this morning because we're dealing with the opposite of faith. Can God still be faithful even if He doesn't heal me? Let me say that again. Can God still be faithful if He doesn't heal me? Emphatically, He can and He has and He will always be because His character does not change. And you see, the enemy of faith is unbelief. But you know, we have this tension, don't we? And I talked about it just briefly, and I have to bring it up again, is that, that faith has been so abused which in, is a certain part of the body of Christ that if you just have enough faith that you will be healed. Or... I've met individuals who name it and claim it, yet they're suffering and dying. And they believe that if they just say like 40 times that Jesus is my healer and that I am all well, that all of a sudden they're going to be well. And the reason is they believe that is because that's what they've heard. That's what they've been told to do. And, and there's nowhere in the Bible do I see the disciples going and saying, if you just confess it enough, you will be made well. Now, does confession matter? 
Yes, confession does matter. But we have to get past this place. And I've seen it happen in the body of Christ where families will have somebody who's suffering, dying, and they won't even allow themselves to mourn. And then all of a sudden, they believe right till the end, till that very last moment, that individual passes away, and then the family is just in chaos. And they're driven from Christ instead of driven to Christ. Because they're like, where was my faith? It wasn't good enough. It wasn't sufficient enough. And that part is not true. And then we miss out on the grieving of death and the suffering that comes with cancer or, or some sickness. And the reality is we know we are living a fallen world. So we hold this tension, don't we? So it's always interesting that I can pray in utmost faith that God will heal somebody, but yet I know in my heart that it may not be God's will to heal somebody. But I'm going to pray. Believing. Because that's what I got to do. Because I know God is a healer. I know that God still heals people today. But here we have this deal going on within the life of Christ. And I'm kind of like, Jesus' bad day. I preached that, uh, I don't know how long ago, but it was in Mark that, that Jesus' bad day, well, his bad day just got worse. So let's go from Jesus' bad day to his bad life. And you'll see what I'm talking about just in a minute. If it was me. Now, Jesus is different than me. Thank God. So he goes to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. So he goes back to Nazareth. Nazareth. And on the Sabbath day, he came and began to teach in the synagogue, which is what he did. So people who don't think we should gather together, you're, you're mistaken. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what, what is the wisdom given to him in such miracles as these performed by his hands? And they said, and this is where we get the title from, is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Mary? And and in Luke it says, is this not the son of Joseph? His brothers are with us. His sisters are with us. And then they took an offense at him. They became offended at Jesus. And this word offense here can be defined into this way as they took, they became filled with disgust. For him. They were disgusted with Jesus. You know, and isn't it interesting? Like, I don't go back to my hometown very often because there's really not much there for me. But I know people would put me in the same light as they knew me back then. Have you guys thought about that much? And it's kind of like in, in family situation. And, and so let's give them a grace card. Let's just say, okay, they were familiar with this little boy who is a carpenter who has grown up to be 30. And now all of a sudden he shows up on the scene with great wisdom, 
doing miracles, but yet we know him as the carpenter. And he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. You guys may not know this, but I'm Pastor Jeremy at Cornerstone. But when I go home, I'm dad. Sometimes I have to remind them that I'm pastor dad. But I'm just dad. And they're so familiar with dad with his ups and downs and all around. They just, his daddy, he's like, oh, here goes dad again. Look at how passionate he is. And they laugh. But isn't that kind of what we get with individuals around us? We become very familiar. And then what happens when we become very familiar when they begin to grow? We don't see their growth. We just see where they really, really were and, and where they began. And we put them in this box and they stay in this box. And I remember there's an individual that my wife knows who he is, but I discipled him in our discipleship training school. And man, he had the best stories ever. I mean, his stories were so good, they were unbelievable. And then they just kept coming and coming and coming to where you finally said, I do not believe this individual. He's like, how could you? I mean, his stories are so good. But he came to us straight off the streets. From people witnessing to him. And then he joins the discipleship group. And God begins to do so much in his life. And even discipling him. And, and being helped discipling him. I learned so much from him. Because we were doing so much for him. And got so much wisdom from my mentor. But I remember as he would begin to grow. And we left YWAM. And he just began to grow and, and just flourish. And we were in Turkey and he would come. I just probably, he's not listening. He's got too much on his plate. He would come and we'd just be like, I don't know if I can trust this guy. And I even said to one of my friends, I said that he was dating a girl. I called him up and said, hey, you've got to watch out for this guy. He's not a good guy, at least not at this point. But he just continued to grow and grow. And then it becomes, you just, man, he begins blessing us. He begins speaking in, in events that I would never imagine. He's so smart. And uh, my old mentor, we, we talked on the phone one day about this individual. And we came to the conclusion we had to say, and even with my wife, we had to say, either the Lord has done something marvelous with him, and he is the real deal, or he is not. Because I was so familiar with his past. And yet, when I let go of this tension of just saying, you know what, he's the real deal. God, he's yours. I begin to see him in a whole different light. Now he is no longer that individual I knew back then. He's the individual I know now. He is 
arms, we are arm to arm locked in the gospel and giving the gospel out. But do you see this thing? So we, we look at Jesus' hometown and we just think about this. Like they were so familiar with him, but it became even worse. That they loathed him. And this is where it gets worse, folks. And for you that are called into ministry and you're called to the work, it is no easy task. Because we see in John 7, verse 5. And we know this to be true, and you can turn there or just write it down for later. But for not even his brothers were believing in him. Those closest to him in his circle had a hard time what to do with this Jesus. And I often joke, it's like, Man, Jesus, you allowed your disciples to talk to you any way they wanted to. Remember, Jesus was rebuked by Peter. And then Jesus was told to be a madman by his own family. They were afraid and acquaintance, afraid he lost his mind. And I have to admit to you, and, and, and I want to be real careful how, how I say things, because they will be taken potentially out of context. But the good thing is, so is Jesus. But I have to say this, and, and I hope this is okay, is that I want to be a pastor unlike any pastor you've had. People have said, pastors don't act like this. And I'm like, yeah, i got to grow. I need to grow. But I want to know, I want you to know that I want to be amongst the people. But see, when you get amongst the people, it opens you up to a lot of scrutiny. You see, and I was telling my kids, it's like, hey, hey, this is just the way it is. This is a call, but this is who your dad wants to be. I want to be with our people. This isn't my church. This is his church. But with that becomes familiarity. And I will risk familiarity to be different. So I want to write something, and I love you guys. You guys have done so much for my life. And I believe I've done some good for you too. And you can tell where I've been the last two weeks. Just kidding. (laughs) I want to read this to you because I think it it sums up, and then we're going to move on. This is interesting. Jesus not being able to do miracles in his hometown amongst his friends and family. In John 7, I've already shared that, says that his own brothers were not believing in him. I do think there is a familiarity problem. What do I mean? People get stuck in the place where we stick them. Truth is, people grow. But it is hard for us to recognize the growth, isn't it? 
So we don't trust and we don't look at them in the same light as they have become. Now this is hard to say about Jesus, right? For He is God. Yet He did not start the ministry until what? He was 30 and was baptized. We know from an early age He grew in stature and wisdom, yet He was submitted to His parents. One day this carpenter would take on a whole new and His true identity as who he would be known for. And that is what? Which is why we're studying Mark the Messiah. Again, it is hard for his home folks to embrace that this carpenter is their Messiah. Isn't it so true? Is they're so familiar? How could this be the anointed one? We too must recognize our own personal growth and celebrate it. At the very same time, celebrate the growth of our friends and family. We actually need to speak it out and allow them to walk out this new life, so to speak. You hear where I'm, what I'm saying there? Is we need to take time to look at people's growth. And we need to say, yes, Lord, You are so, so very good. Because here's what happens, is if we're not careful, unbelief, doubt comes in and, and it, it, it steals, kills, and, and destroys. And it says here in verse 5 and 6, He could do no miracle there except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. And He wondered, He was amazed at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages to teach them. Now, I want you to see this word wondered. He was amazed. There's only a few other times that Jesus was amazed. And that was at their faith of the Gentiles. When he would say that, it's not always of the Jews, of the Gentiles. Look, at their faith, he was amazed. But now he's amazed at their unbelief. And, and let's go, it gets deeper. So turn over to Luke chapter 4. And, and it always gets interesting to hear a, a bigger picture of the same story. So, verse 22 through 24. And all were speaking well of him. And this was in Nazareth, Nazareth, where he got up and he read from the prophet Isaiah. They were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So he's, they're like challenging him to do miracles. And this isn't some plea. I think this comes from a place of we've already discovered of, of, a, of a loath, of, of a stumbling against who this Jesus was. But he says that, and have you ever heard it said, and it angers me, how can a healer walk around and wear glasses? Have you heard that before? And it is a statement well better than I just said. But my, my friends say that, and I had to call them out on it. Like, are you kidding me? Because somebody wears glasses, they can't have the gift of healing? 
That's like Jesus saying, how did you die on the cross? Save yourself, you saved others. Isn't it true? And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Well, it gets worse for Jesus, right? I said Jesus in his bad life. But 28, it says, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things because he was speaking against them and to them and saying, look at what God has done for the unbelievers, the Gentiles. And he's talking about Elijah and the leper and Elijah and the widow. What even about Naaman? But it goes on and says they were filled with rage and they, verse 29, they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was, had been built in order to throw him down from a cliff. So it wasn't only their familiarity. It's like, we're going to get rid of this man. We're going to get rid of this hometown hero. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. I always am amazed. Isn't it amazing that how did he escape those who were going to throw him over the cliff? It wasn't his time. So I'm wondering if we could come to this place in our lives, and, and, and this is where I'm going to talk about unbelief and doubt, is if we could come to this place in our life just saying, God, you got me in your hands. And I'm speaking to me as well as you, as saying, God, you have me in your hands. You're, my time, my days are numbered. You see, unbelief is the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the trait of not trusting in and relying on someone or something, especially used in not trusting in or relying on the God of Israel and Jesus as His Messiah. You see, there's a difference between saying, in my opinion, and maybe I've tried to form a box too much, is there's a difference from saying, I don't believe that God heals everybody than saying God can't heal anybody. Huge difference. A huge difference, you see, because God still heals and Jesus does miracles. And so we have to realize that in the midst of miracles, in the midst of prayer, there has to be a belief and a response from those who are being prayed for and desiring to be prayed. And the subject being prayed about. I've had at times, and I'm sure maybe you have too, is that people have brought people to me to pray for them. And in my spirit, I'm like, I can't pray. This individual is being drugged to me. They have no desire to stand before me and be prayed for. It's the individual. Now, I guess we could grapple with that one, but what I'm saying is be careful who you pull to the altar to, for your pastor to pray for. <laughs> There has to be some amount of faith. There has to be faith. You see, unbelief takes us to a place that is denying the very nature of who God is and who Christ says He is. That is why as a church, 
And we should hold to the doctrine that God still heals today and that we do and we can pray in all faith that God will heal. Last week we practiced that when the elders prayed around a few men. And we got a report that Joseph's not here this morning, but by Thursday morning he was feeling 100% better. And he likened it to the prayers of the elders. And I tell you, there is no uh, special thing about the elders. We just pray in faith. And what the Bible says is that bring yourselves before the elders and let them lay hands on you. We believe in divine healing. But I want to kind of go a different place real quick. Is there's a difference between unbelief and doubt. As I was having a conversation with this young man about doubt. What if Jesus isn't real? What if Jesus isn't who He says He is? What if what we're believing is all a lie? And I always go back to my famous words, well, I'd rather believe a lie than anything else. But I said, listen, child, you bring your doubts. You bring your fears. You bring them to the cross. You bring them to the church because you remember not too long ago, if an individual doubted certain things about the faith, they were ostracized from the church. And so we have people that walk in and they're not really for sure if this thing called Christianity is real or not. Or they're real not for sure if Jesus can heal or not. So they bring all their doubts, all their fears, all the wounds, and they come in amongst us. And and how are we treating them? And so I told this little child, I said, yeah, I too have had doubts. But I've also tasted and seen. I've experienced His goodness. I've experienced His faithfulness. Although I struggle and different things, He is true. And, and you guys may not... I, I know people don't like me using names, but I'm going to use a name today. Philip Yancey. He's the crazy skinny guy with an afro. He wrote tremendous books. The Jesus I Never Knew. What's so amazing about grace? Now, you may not agree with all, and I'm not endorsing Philip Yancey for for a, a second, except I really like his writing. But I will say this, is that he was the first individual that I knew that would allow us to bring our doubts before the Lord and figure them out. Out. And you see, people with doubts make us uncomfortable. Because we're like, where are they going? We never know where they're going. But what I'm saying is this, is that doubting is different than unbelief. Doubt is an uncertainty about the truth and the reality of spiritual things. As seen especially in the lack of faith and in commitment to God. Now, I'm going to say we need to repent of doubt, so I'll get there, okay? But listen, doubt can lead us in two different directions. Into Christ 
or away from Christ. You see, true doubts have an answer. True doubts have an answer. You either press in and you find out what those doubts are about, and we see people that have struggled with their faith and written books while they struggled, and they're still in the faith. Why? Because they know that Jesus is true. Even when they don't understand. Yet you have this other portion of doubt that say, you know what? I can't, I can't get the answer, so I'm going to reject this Jesus. I'm going to reject him. And this is where it hit me this week is when I was reading about doubt and the themes of doubt. It says doubts lead to insecurity and a lack of trust concerning God's willingness and ability to deliver his people. Let me say that again. Doubt leads to insecurity and the lack of trust concerning God's willingness and ability to deliver his people. It also leads where? To fear of people and situations. So you're like, yeah, and I'm kind of with you. Like, where are you going? I don't know. We're just going. But think about it, and we'll get to point number two, because point number one was really long, as always. But point number two, we'll go by fast. Think of Abraham. God had promised him a seed. The older he got, the less likely that seed was going to be. And so what? They went to Hagar, right? And later on we see that that's of the flesh and Isaac was the promise. But, so they have Hagar. They just make a mess of things. And then poor Abraham, his wife, blames him for the mess. It's just interesting. But later on, God stops by. And he tells Abraham, in a, in a year, your wife... We'll have a baby. And who's laughing in the tent? Sarah. They had doubts. Like, how could this come from such an old person as us? Like, we're past the years of bearing children. They had doubts too, but where are they at in the Bible? Actually, they're our fa- he's our father, right? Abraham. The seed came through. And according to Galatians, we're part of that blessing, that covenant. They did not give up on the promises of God, even in the midst of their doubts. What about Moses? He was called and and saw God in, in a burning bush, and he said, Lord, you can't send me. And even before that, his own people said, who are you, Moses? You came to save us. Like, who are you to be an arbitrator between this situation, and he runs to the wilderness. And then he gets in the wilderness. God speaks to him and says, this is what I'm going to call you to do. And he's like, no, you can't. They're not going to believe me. I stutter. I can't do this. All kinds of excuses. And walks away, or doesn't walk away, but God says, okay, then I'm going to send Aaron with you. He's going to be your mouthpiece. Even in the midst of all that doubt, where do we find Moses? We find him in Hebrew chapter 11. Not only do we hear two things about Abraham and Moses, what were they? They were friends of God. What about Elijah? Mount Carmel. Takes on the prophets of Baal and slays 
a number of them. And then all of a sudden Jezebel reaches up or says, I'm going to get this man. And what does he do? He runs away. What? Why? Why did you run away? Why did you doubt? But yet, where do we find him? Hebrews chapter 11. What about Peter? We see in Matthew 14, 31, immediately Jesus stretched out His hand. In the, remember when He started walking on the water, He began to sink when He saw the storms. We're in good company here, folks. Uh, his hand and took hold of Him and He said to Him, You of little faith, why do you doubt? Yet Peter is Peter. There's not much more to say about Peter. You see, so here's the deal. In the midst of this Christian walk, and when we come to these situations as Jesus finds Himself and His hometown people find themselves of saying, taking a great offense at Him, being offended, disgusted by Him because of what He says He is, is that, where are you? Where are you? And I want you to know today that that unbelief is something that you have to repent of. And your doubts even as you deal with them and, and God is not afraid of your doubts and fears, I want you to know that even in the midst of that, there has to be an expectation within our hearts that God can do miracles. Because there were a few people that were healed on that day that Jesus was not able to heal much. There was some faith. So although, and I'll say this over and over again, although I don't believe God's will is to heal everybody, I don't know who that is, and so I pray in in utmost faith that God can heal. But I leave the miracles in His hands. A solution for doubting, point number three. And this is where I started this week. Is although I'm very comfortable with doubts, but I'm not comfortable with where the doubts lead me. You see, I talked about doubts lead us to a place of insecurity, of is God who He says He is, and, and can I really trust Him in His goodness? And, and so you begin to doubt the goodness of God, and then if you're not careful, you begin to go down a road that could potentially lead to unbelief. And so what is the solution to the problem of doubt? And I want to read this because I thought it was good. It says, unlike many today who laud doubt as a philosophically sophisticated... Yeah, you... Okay... Unlike many people who today who lauded lauded doubt as something really good and smart and wise, James considers doubt a moral matter and calls for repentance of those who are double-minded about God and His Word. Let's read James 1, 5-8 together. It says, But if any man, which I guess I should let you turn there, that would be the smart thing. James 1 chapter or James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8. But if you any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously, 
and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, like I alluded to doubt being okay, but there is a point that we need to bring our doubts and fears before the Lord and say, Lord, I am sorry that I am doubting Your goodness. And especially if you are a child of God. If you're an unbeliever, that's totally different. But I'm talking about a child of God is, is that it's okay to have your doubts, but when it comes down to it, are you really trusting Him to be who He says He is? Because that's what faith is. So there's a time of repentance. But there's also a time of patience. Because we know Philippians 1.6 says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who has began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You are not who you are going to be. And although as we already talked about, people want to keep you in this box, don't worry about that box. And I hate this saying, you just be you. Have you heard that a lot lately? Oh my goodness, I'm going to strangle. Yeah, you just be you. Yeah, whatever. That's not what I mean. Be who God has created you to be. Ephesians, I have four through, uh, chapter 2, 4-10, through 10, but I'm only going to do the last portion because of time. It says, I'll do verse 10 of chapter 2 of, of Ephesians. For we are His workmanship. We are all under construction. All of us, every single one of us, we are under construction. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that what we would walk in them. So be patient with your life. It's called discipleship. It's called growing in the Lord. And the last, almost last, is the Bible. How do we build our faith? And then how do we get to a place that we believe that Jesus can actually do what He says He will do? Is I believe it comes from being in the Word, being in the Bible, because it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Now I want to say this to you, that so faith, so that we don't mix up faith, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the words concerning Christ. Because when that, said, that Scripture said, it is in context of what? The Gospel. The Gospel. But we get to know who God is by reading our Bibles. And as we walk this journey, when we see His faithfulness from the old and the new, we begin to say, this is a God in whom I can trust. And the last but not least is be honest with the Father. So today, this is something that I have been really so impressed upon when I'm reading through Psalms, is the raw emotions of the writers of Psalms, whether it's David or 
the sons of Korath or Asaph, whoever it is, they're pouring out their hearts to the Lord. And they're being honest before Him. And so I want you to know that that if you are lacking faith today and that if you are walking and muddled in all kinds of doubt, I want you to be so brave as to go before God our Father and just be honest with Him. Why do I say this? Because He already knows what you are thinking. You don't surprise Him. One bit. So let me say these again and then we're going to take communion so I'll have Jed come up. So a solution for doubting God is repentance. Patience with yourselves. Reading of the Word on a constant basis, daily basis, and being honest with the Father in prayer. You see, and I want to kind of lay something out. So if you need communion, can you raise your hand? We'll bring those around to you. Wow, folks, did you not see communion? As you, well, okay, you did. I'm joking, guys. I'm not, I'm joking. I'm not rebuking you. It's a joke. See, even my own wife forgot communion. (laughs) But all seriousness for the moment, and you can stay seated until we rise to do communion together. See, I guess I would assume everybody here is a believer. But I can't assume that. You see, Jesus is who He says He is, and we know and we've seen the the wrath. It will come. The judgment will come. And and all these things. And we know the Bible testifies, and I've already shared this at the beginning of service, we know the Bible testifies of the wickedness of man's heart. It testifies and it tells us of that. But again, God saw it fit to send His own Son to do what you and I could not do for ourselves. Because of our unbelief and our lack of faith in walking out the commands of God, it was impossible for us to do. And so He sent His only Son that He would do what you and I could not do. So God made a covenant with Israel and made an early covenant on with Adam and Eve that He would send a seed, and then He confirmed the covenants through Noah, and then He confirmed it with Abraham, and then David, and then He came. And He made a new covenant with us. 
So I want to talk about just a moment is a new birth. A new beginning. And by God's grace, may we understand it and grasp it wholeheartedly. The mysteries of it is that you see, you and I are defiled by sin. And we all like to, and, and I'm the chief among us, we all like to go back to this place where I'm only human. I'm only human, so I make mistakes. And so we, we, we give excuses for our bad behavior. And, and it is true that we have grace and, and God forgives, but it, there's no excuses to continue to walk in that behavior. There's no excuses because why? Jesus has given us new beginnings. He's given us new hearts. And somebody needs to hear this today because maybe you haven't totally surrendered your heart to Jesus and saying, Lord, I know that You are not the Lord. I know that there's something missing in my life that I'm not new. Because here's the deal. In Ezekiel, it promises us a new covenant that would come and He would turn these hearts of stone into hearts of what? Flesh. And then the new covenant says He will not visit His Father's sins upon the children. We may struggle with past generational sins. I get that, but they do not have to control us because the blood of Christ is enough. Now we need to take those things to Him. So somebody here today needs a new beginning. And I can't think of a more proper time to get your new beginning than before we partake of communion. It says that this is the new covenant and that, that because of Jesus' blood, I have a new heart. And you know what happens? Is when you become a new believer, the Holy Spirit comes and it dwells in you. And what happens? It writes this thing on your heart called the law. And when you're born again and you're new, you just begin to do the commands of Christ. You might struggle at times. Uh, and trust me, the longer you walk the Christian faith, it just seems not to get any easier. But we become new. So I'd like us to bow our heads today. This isn't something we always do here, but I want to give you a chance to have a new beginning, a new life in Christ, because in Christ He has paid the ultimate price for your sin, for your recklessness, for your unbelief. And the Bible says that whoever believes in Him, His only begotten Son, shall not perish, but have eternal life. You may taste death in this life, but in the one to come, if you trust in Jesus, you will not taste the second death. Total separation from the Father. You see right now, you may not realize this, but under the world right now, that you are walking in a grace. It's what we call a common grace for all men. And today is the day of salvation. But one day that common grace is going to be done away with. And we will stand before 
Jesus face to face. So is that, if that's you, if you need to put your trust in the one who can forgive your sins and the one who pay, took upon himself all your sins, I would like to ask you to raise your hand this morning. Nobody's looking. Okay, you can put down your hands. So let's pray together before we partake of communion. And maybe we'll just all pray together. And it may not be the most eloquent sinner's prayer that you've ever heard, but it shouldn't be. It's about rendering our hearts before the Father. So let's all pray together. If you'd pray with me, maybe repeat after me. Lord Jesus, we cry out to You. And we testify that Your Word is true. That man's heart is wicked. And easily deceived. Jesus, you know my weaknesses, and I bring them all to you. Will you forgive me for my sins and falling short of your glory? I thank you for your blood. And thank you for your cross and for the resurrection. And Lord, I pray today will be the day of a new beginning. I trust you that I am a new creation in you, Christ. Lord, when doubts and fears come, speak your word to me. Holy Spirit, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you stand with me today as we partake in communion. And I am thankful that you did not take an offense at the cross. Think about that just a minute, that you didn't take offense at the cross. That's why you're taking communion today. It's the power of God to save. So as we open together and we take the wafer and, and it's His body that was broken for us, and His body who took the stripes for us so that we could be saved. We do this in remembrance of Him, so let's eat together. And as we open the cup to drink of the juice, we do this knowing that His blood 
Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And that His blood washes us white as snow. And so as we drink this together, He says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of Me until when? Until I return. So let's drink together.